So open your Bibles to John chapter 13. As I mentioned, this is a new section in the Gospel of John. We are looking at the completion of Jesus' public ministry. He has shut that down, and he is now moving to a more private ministry for his followers. And we saw this. If you go back to John chapter 1 and verse 11, John started off the gospel and he said this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And we saw that play out in the first 12 chapters. Jesus went to his own. He went to the Jews, but they rejected him. They did not receive him. And so what's going on here is in the next five chapters, Jesus has turned his attention from his public ministry to those who did receive him. Because if you look at verse 12 in chapter 1, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there was a group of people who who received him. And over the next five chapters, Jesus has focused his ministry on them. And Blake mentioned this last week, but the next five chapters are one conversation. It takes place in one setting. We have the benefit of slowing that down a little bit and exploring that uh, over the next few months. But this is all one conversation that we're looking at between Jesus and his disciples. And while this is a new section of John's gospel, I want to remind you that this section does fall within the overall purpose of this gospel, as we've talked about over and over again, putting that before you because we want you to understand the authorial intent of this gospel. What John was trying to communicate in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the overall purpose. And in this next section where Jesus is going to be very specific in his private ministry to his disciples, preparing him for the time that he will depart from them, John still records things that are going to reveal Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, so that we would believe that. And in believing that truth, we have eternal life. So this morning... Let's begin that conversation. In chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. And for a lot of you who have grown up in church, this is a very familiar story, but I hope it doesn't, I hope your heart isn't hardened to this story already and you think you've got it all figured out. Because what I want you to see this morning is the perfect love of Christ displayed in humility. Yes, Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. And a lot of you, some of you who were married, you may have included that as part of your marriage ceremony. Or you may have done it in a youth group. I know in one youth group I was at, we showed up one night and our leaders were there and they were there to wash our feet. And it was a symbol, right? It wasn't because we had stinky feet. But it was a symbol of something that was a greater reality. It was the humility of Christ that was put on display. And that's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see Jesus. And I want you to see that he loves you. And he expresses that love in humility. 
So let's get into it. In John chapter 13, first in verse 1, let's look at the extent of Christ's love. John recorded, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 1 here is a banner statement that sets the tone for the rest of our passage, but also for the rest of the entire Gospel of John. Because this is what John wants us to see throughout the rest of this Gospel, is that Jesus loved his own in the world to the very end. So what does he do? He starts off and he he gives us this, this timing. It's before the Feast of the Passover, and we've already talked a lot about that. That's when this is taking place. It's a... In fact, I was thinking as an interesting note that this would be the last Passover where a lamb's blood over the doorposts would be commemorated or would need to be commemorated. A lot of the Jews still celebrate that. But what the reality is, is now we can look to the Lamb of God and His blood on the cross. Because this is it. This is the Passover that Jesus will go to the cross as the Lamb of God and make that sacrifice. And then we also see that Jesus' hour had come. This is a theme that we've seen woven throughout the whole gospel. We saw it from the beginning. We talked a lot about that, how my hour is not yet here, my hour is not yet here. And here we know that Jesus' hour has come. And it says here that it's come. It's a time where He will depart out of the world So we know where he's coming from and we know where he's going to. He's going back to the Father to share in the eternal glory that he had with the Father in eternity past. Jesus knew that his hour had come. This hour that was predetermined by God had come for Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father. And then John says some very profound statements. Having loved his own who were in the world. Having loved. This is referring to the love that Jesus has shown his own, his sheep, his own people, his disciples in his life. He's displayed this love for his own in his life, and he loved them to the end in his death. Now that word end in the Greek is the word telos. It literally means complete or perfect. What John is saying here is that he perfectly loved his own to completion. All the way to the cross. Making atonement for their sins. Sacrificing himself. Displaying his love. What's the implication here for us? That's a banner statement, and we're going to keep probably keep referring back to this, that this is what Jesus is doing, that he is going to continue to show his love over and over and over again in the words that he's going to speak to the disciples. But what about today for us? To those of us who are his own, you go back to John 10, who have heard his voice and have followed him because you know him, Jesus loves you. 
Jesus loves you. And so many of us have known that since we were little kids, right? If you've grown up in church, you were taught that song at a young age. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But I think we struggle to really understand and believe that and accept it for, to be a reality because as we've grown up from that time as a kid when we sang that song and we first learned it, our view of love has become a little distorted. Because a lot of times when we consider love from the world, we see self-gratifying love. We see love where, man, I really believe that person loved me, but then all of a sudden they stopped loving me. It wasn't constant. It wasn't consistent. It was conditional. That's not what this is. This love is not self-gratifying. It's unconditional. It's self-sacrificial love in which Jesus seeks to give of himself constantly. It's a humiliating kind of love out of which Jesus endured pain, suffering, rejection, rebellion, death. That's the kind of love we're talking about. So when I say Jesus loves you, I hope, and I struggle, I've been struggling with this all week, and I'm still struggling with this. Will you help me understand what that actually means? I want to understand the depth of your love, and not just leave it at, yes, you love me, you died for me, and and leaving at those words, but understanding what actually occurred. That Jesus loves us. It is perfect and complete love seen throughout his life and in his death. That's the extent of Christ's love. It's the type of love that the Apostle Paul would describe as surpassing all knowledge and understanding. Jesus loves us. The question is, is that good enough for us? Is the love of Christ good enough for us? Or do we seek the love of others? Do we trade that perfect and complete love for the love of another man or another woman? For the love of our children or our spouse? I'm not saying that you aren't to love one another, but what I'm saying is so often we forget about the perfect love of Christ that was displayed on the cross for us. Complete love never-failing love. Because, man, I really want that person to love me. I want that person to love me. And so we're not satisfied with the love of Christ. Are we chasing after the love of something that's imperfect and incomplete? Or are we content with resting in the constant perfect and complete love that Jesus gives us. One thing that we can see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus found great joy in the working out or the expression of his love, and I'm so glad we get to see one of those examples this morning. I love this story. 
I mean, we could spend a lot of time here because there's so many different cool things to consider about what took place that night when Jesus humbled himself to wash the disciples' feet. That was an expression of his love. And so let's look at that. In John 13, 2 first, said, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Let's stop there for a second because we got a couple of key points that I want you to remember as we go forward. First key point, during supper. They've already started eating. That's important for us to remember. John is going to bring us into that room. He's, he's setting it up for us so we can understand all that happened. And so it's very important for us to understand that this was during supper, that they had already begun eating. And when they ate, they were reclining at the table. This is not like where we would go and we would sit at a bench or sit at a chair and eat at a table. I love the Cases house, by the way, because they have high tables. You know, taller people, it's very difficult for us to stand and eat on a counter down here. They've got high tables. That's not what we're dealing with here. This is a low table where they're reclining. They're propped up probably on one arm, eating with their hands. And they've got dirty feet. See, when you would walk into that room, they would have taken off their sandals. A lot of us still do that in the South. I know a lot of people, uh, I know my in-laws, a lot of people will walk into their house and they'll take off their shoes as they walk in the door. Definitely at Natalie's grandparents' house. Everybody does that. You do not get that carpet dirty. Mama will handle up on you. But that's what they would have done. But their feet were still dirty, right? They were wearing sandals. That's important to remember. It's during supper, and they have not washed their feet. It was quite normal for you to wash your feet before you eat. Because you think about it. You're reclined at the table. you got everybody laying around you. Everybody's got nasty, cracked, dirty feet. Normally, this would have been done by a servant, but apparently there was no servant there to wash their feet because their feet were still dirty. Now, to add a little more context to this, we're not, you don't have to turn there, but in a separate account of this same event, in Luke, we see that not only were their feet dirty, but the disciples were arguing among one another as to who was the greatest among them. So you kind of get the setting. Everyone sitting around, dirty feet, eating, and the disciples, knowing that someone should probably humble themselves to, the, to perform the role of the servant in washing the feet, instead are arguing with one another as to who's the greatest. And all the while, Jesus, the Son of God, is sitting right there. It made me think of, as a kid, one of the chores that we had that we would alternate back and forth was doing the dishes. Man, I hated doing the dishes. I got married, and guess what my chore is? I do the dishes. Uh, But Zach and I, my brother Zach, we were the ones that would go back and forth. And so we started off, we would try doing a month at a time, but of course we wouldn't keep up with that. And then we would get in trouble. So then Dad said, okay, well, how about every two weeks? And of course we couldn't keep up with that. So then it went, okay, week to week, y'all are going to rotate doing the dishes. And that sounds good, except you're leaving kids in charge of determining whose week it is. So there would be times where Zach would be gone for a week, and I'm like, uh-uh, I had to wash dishes all week. This is your week. He's like, uh-uh, not on the schedule. It's your week. And so we would argue back and forth. 
Dad would come in and say, hey, dish, typically it was on a Saturday or a Sunday when all the dishes seemed to accumulate. Hey, somebody needs to do the dishes. And Zach and I were like, that's your week. No, that's your week. And we would go back and forth arguing when we're throwing it. Guess, guess who's in the room? Dad. I want you to keep that illustration in mind because that's what I thought about when this happened. They're arguing with one another about who's the greatest. Meanwhile, their feet are dirty and Jesus, the greatest, is sitting in that room. And then we move on to John 13, 3. Keep that in mind. Keep that illustration in mind. John 13, 3. John's going to give us, John does this very intentionally, by the way. He's going to give us three statements that exalt Christ. And he's doing that because where we're going to go is we're going to see the exalted Christ humble himself. So we see a contrast here. In John 13, 3, John continued and said, Jesus, first statement, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, second, and that he had come from God, and third, that he was going back to God. Three exalting statements, right? He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. The Father has given him everything. We know where he came from. The Father has sent him, and we know where he is going. He is returning back he is the eternal word, John chapter 1. He is returning to that glory that he had with his father in eternity past. This is who is in that room. And John's point is that if there was anyone that should have been served at that time, it was Jesus. But what happened? Look in verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Continuing in verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus humbles himself out of an expression of his love. When you read verse 4, you can tell this is a vivid memory for John. I mean, look at the detail. He rose from supper. He took off his outer garments. He took a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet and then wipe the feet of the disciples with the towel. I picture here that, do, do you really think that the disciples were still arguing about who was the greatest among them? I'm picturing that awkward silence and shame. Because that's, that's what happened to me as a kid. Zach and I would argue back and forth about who was to do the dishes. And then we would just come, we would get to an impasse. And we would just, I don't know, maybe he'll get up and do it at some point. And then all of a sudden, Dad would get up. And Dad would walk into the kitchen. And the look, right? Me and Zach are like... And we're listening. Like, please don't turn on that water. Please don't turn on that water. And then you hear the water, the faucet turn on. And you start hearing dishes move around. It's like you're looking at one another like, what are we going to do? That's what's going on here. 
I think that's what happened. John was probably, he saw Jesus stand up and like, uh-oh. He saw Jesus remove his outer garment, take that towel, and he's like, oh my gosh, he's doing it. Fill the basin with water and then kneel down to wash their feet. Nobody's saying anything. After seeing the exaltation of Christ in verse 3, we get to see the humility of Christ in verses 4 and 5. Jesus here performs one of the lowest acts possible. You know, I mentioned that a servant would typically do this, but not a Jewish servant. They wouldn't even do this. This task was, was designed and assigned to a Gentile servant. A Jewish servant was above that. So you understand why no one among the group of disciples would actually get up and actually humble themselves because not even a Jewish servant would do this. Yet the all-powerful creator, the Son of God, humbled himself and washed their feet. Now, Jesus does have a purpose in doing this. He talks about it later on. And the application for us is going to be pretty clear. It's going to be pretty obvious. But I'll hold off for now because he's going to give it to us in his own words. Jesus couldn't get to his purpose because first he has to deal with Peter. Because Peter is the brother, right? Between me and Zach, Peter would have been the one that said, okay, I've got to say something. And so in verses 6 through 11... We get to see this discussion between Jesus and Peter. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. In verse 6, Peter says what all the disciples are likely thinking. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus, do you really think I'm going to let you wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus tells him that he doesn't understand now, but if he shut up, he'll get to teaching him. He'll explain it. Peter, let me do what I need to do. Stop talking and let me do this so that you will understand because after this, you will understand. In the immediate context, Jesus is going to explain this to Peter. But in a much bigger context, afterward continues. And so every day when Peter is going to think about the supremacy and exaltation of Christ, he's going to go back to that night and he's going to think about the humility of Jesus, that he would humble himself to a position that not even a Jewish slave would take, and he would wash my feet. He's going to understand afterward. 
But in verse 8, he doesn't understand at this point. So he continues in his defiance, and he says, you will never wash my feet. Sounds like that, that discussion later on, whenever Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me three times. Peter, you're going to betray me three times. He says, I will never leave your side. He's defiant. And it comes across as maybe an honorable approach to Jesus. Like, no, you're never going to wash my feet. But it's actually stubborn pride. We know that about Peter. We, we can see that throughout Peter's life. I mean, don't get me wrong. Peter is going to become one of those. He's going to become the foundation of the Jewish church. He's going to preach at Pentecost, and thousands are going to be saved. But he's got to go through this process. He's got to come to the re- grips of the reality that the Lord will do as he wills. A lot of us need to come to grips with that reality, too. That the Lord will do as he will. Specifically in this case, Peter needed to accept the reality of the humiliation of Jesus. Because it would only get worse as they move into the near future. Jesus tells him that he has to do this. That it is a necessity. That if he doesn't, he has no share with him. He is referring to the spiritual meaning displayed in that physical act of washing. He is talking about salvation here. He's telling Peter that unless I wash you, you have no share with with me. What he's saying is that there is no other way to be saved, Peter. That salvation is exclusively through Christ and Christ alone. And this is a message that he'll continue to communicate to his disciples in this conversation as we move through John's gospel in the coming months. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, talking, about, talking to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's exclusive. He continues in verse, chapter 15, verses 5 through 6, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There is no other way to be saved. Peter I must wash you. Notice who's doing the act. It is the Son of God who is performing the act of cleansing. I must do this. There is no other way. So then you get zealous Peter, right? In verse 9, does a complete 180. He says, okay, well... Not my feet then. Give me a full bath. I want the whole thing. If this is what I need, bathe me. Not just my feet, but also my head, my hands. To which Jesus patiently teaches Peter some very important Christian beliefs that I think we would do well to consider as well. In verses 10 through 11, he says, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Now, that phrase right there, 
I know my Bible has a little footnote and says that some of yours may not include that phrase because some of the manuscripts didn't have it. It's okay if that wasn't in there. Because what he's saying, if you were to take that out, the one who has bathed does not need to wash but is completely clean. The point here is that a person who is clean, that is the person who has believed. They don't need to be cleaned again. That when Jesus went to the cross, that was once and for all. He covered. He cleansed us. For those of us who have trusted in that act on the cross for salvation, we are clean. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you were clean, but not every one of you. So spiritually, the one who is clean is the one who has believed, expressed true saving faith, right? Not just acknowledged that what he is, what he says is true, but you've trusted in it for yourself. Practically, one who is bathed doesn't need to shower every time they get their feet dirty. Now, I'm a guy, so of course I think that, sure, that makes sense to me. If my feet get dirty, I don't need to go and take a complete shower. Spiritually, the one who is clean is the one who has believed. And so if you've trusted, you've been redeemed. You've been saved. You've been clean. And you can't lose that. We've already seen this truth of eternal security in this gospel. If you flip back to John chapter 6, read along with me from verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, All the Father gives me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal, eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Skip down to verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is a promise. If you have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, you can't lose salvation. Because that's that's going to be consistent with what we see in Ephesians. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, You're going to walk out of here. If you struggle with the security of your salvation, I hope I'm giving you some references that you can turn back to. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, and when we were going through our Ephesians study, I remember Trent had this passage, and he pointed to the, this is referring to the faith. This faith is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's been given to you. You cannot lose your salvation. Once you are clean, you are completely clean. 
But as we live and we walk in this world, by the way, if you want to write this down, Romans 8, 28 through 30, that's another one you can go back and look at. It talks about how those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Those whom he predestined, he justified. Those whom he justified, he is glorified. There is a perfect chain there from the beginning to end of salvation. It has been accomplished. You can't fall out of that because if you have been called, you can go all the way to glorification and it is secure. You are secure in Christ. But as we walk in this world, what happens? Those of us who are clean, what happens? You're walking around in the world. What happens to your feet? Your feet get a little dirty, don't they? Your feet get dirty. Why? Because although we've been clean and we are secure in Christ, we still struggle with sin. We are in the process of being sanctified, becoming more and more like Christ, but we are still in that process. And so we still struggle with our sin. We struggle with our flesh. And so we need to wash our feet regularly. In the basin of confession, repentance, as we continue on in that process of sanctification, our feet get dirty. And that's what Jesus was saying here because he's going to go on and say, you are clean. And that you here, he's, he's redirecting the conversation. It's not just Peter. That you is plural. So now he's opened up the conversation to his disciples and he says, all of you are clean. but not every one of you. Because, of course, the betrayer is in the room. And that is something that I don't want you to overlook. I know the first time that I actually studied this and taught this verse by verse, this was a revelation to me. You want to talk about the humility of Christ that was expressed that night? Not only did Jesus humble himself to wash the feet of his followers, those that were clean, those that were committed to following him, but Judas was in the room. And he humbled himself to wash the feet of his betrayer. I mean, don't, don't think that he skipped over Judas when he was doing this. Jesus kneeled down out of humility and practically washed his feet. And the words that Jesus continues to say is like that last appeal to Judas to believe, to trust. He knows he's going to betray. And so you got this, this complex idea between God's sovereignty but man's responsibility once again. God is sovereign over this plan. This has been predetermined. Judas is going to betray him because it has to happen that way. Just like Blake talked about a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, about man's hearts had to be hardened, their hearts were hardened because Jesus had to die. And so those people with hardened hearts were going to move Jesus to the cross so that we might become children of God. Judas had to do the same thing. Judas was a pivotal piece of that puzzle. He had to be the one that would betray Jesus, but Jesus humbles himself and washed his feet too. We're talking about the depth 
of the humility of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You have to understand who He is so that you can understand the depth of that humility. We already saw in John chapter 6, Jesus knew that Judas was going to portray Him. Going back to John 6, Verses 70 through 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All aspects of Christ's death, even the betrayal of Judas, were predetermined by God. And we get to see the love of Christ expressed that night in the humiliating act of washing the disciples' feet. Now, how do we respond to that? What is the proper response to the love of Christ? Let's pick up in verse 12 and read through verse 16. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus, is, Jesus uses this example of the greater to prescribe the practice of the lesser. Him being the greater, him being the example, he's going to prescribe to the disciples what they should do. And the key here is that Jesus is not commanding them to literally wash one another's feet. Yes, they should wash one another's feet. But they should also, in our terms, carry one another's luggage. They should also humble themselves. The the key here is that they are humbling themselves. It's an act of humility, an inward attitude. See, some people have taken this and they've said this is one of, like, like we have baptism and communion, they've said washing of feet is another ceremony that has been prescribed to the church to perform. That's not what Jesus was doing here. Because if you look, where does he say? You also ought to wash one another's feet. That's the example. Because after that he says, for I have given you an example that you also should do not what I have done, but just as I have done. You also should express humility and service to one another out of love. This was a command of humility. A servant is not greater than his master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. You call me Lord and teacher, and I have humbled myself to wash your feet. 
you also should do just as I have done. You also should express humility. You should put on display my characteristic of humility in your service to one another, to others, so that I would be made known. verse 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Knowing should lead to doing. Knowing that we are to be humble as an expression of the love that we've received from Christ should lead to doing. And in the doing, we will be blessed. Not that we'll receive something for it, necessarily. But then in the act of doing, in the act of living our lives as our Lord and teacher lived his, we will be blessed. We will find joy. We will find satisfaction. We will be complete. If you know these things and you do them, you will be blessed. This morning, it's really neat because from a narrative Sometimes it's very difficult, and you've seen, we've had to give you a lot of implications. What's implied with this text is part of how do, we, how do we live that out? How do we flesh that out in our daily lives? This one, we get to combine a theological truth with a practical application. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. In Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Going back to our text, the Father has given him all things. He came from the Father. He's going back to the Father. Do you see the exaltation of Jesus Christ? You have to understand that. You have to know who Christ is. Because if you don't, then the next words I'm going to tell you are going to be an act. It's just going to be an outward practice. You're going to go off and say, how can I be humble? Let me consider how I can be humble. Okay, I just let somebody do something before me. Or I go out of my way to do something for somebody else. But without knowing who Christ is, you're not going to know. You're not going to have the source, the power to actually do that to live your life that way. Because the thing is, we've been commanded to express that not only to one another. Jesus told the disciples, you two wash one another's feet. But we have to love, we are supposed to love one another and love everyone else. 
in the same way that Christ loved us. You aren't gonna, you aren't gonna find the power and the strength to be humble and love other people out of your love for that person. You follow me? It's not gonna come from there. And I don't care how close they are. My love for Natalie is flawed if I don't love my Christ. I can't love her the way that I should if I don't love Jesus. If I don't know who he is and experience the love that he's given to me, I can't love any of you perfectly, completely. Because that's the type of love that Christ has given us. This is who he is. This Christ, worthy of all honor and service that any of us could ever muster, displayed humility as an expression of love for his own. And he did not stop at washing feet. He didn't stop there. What did it say? He loved his own in the world. He loved them to the end. He continued to display that self-sacrificial love all the way to the cross. In the greatest an absolutely perfect display of the glorious humility of Christ. There it was, on the cross. Church, Jesus loves us. Yeah, we know because the Bible tells us. But I pray that you've, you've experienced that love. That when you read the Bible, it's not just says Jesus loves me, but Jesus loves me. He loves me deeply. He's expressed his love towards me. I can see it. I can feel it. I know it to be true. And while the cross is so much more than an example, you know, he gives the example of washing the feet to the disciples as that, an example. And the cross is so much more than that. It accomplished something that day. But the command to do as I have just done still rings true. It still is in effect. We've received the love of Christ, and Jesus is telling us, do as I have just done. Those of us who have experienced the love of Christ, love others in a display of your love and affection for him. Those of us who have experienced the, the humility of Christ, humble yourself to serve others. Out of that same humility, in a display of your love for Christ. Now, I was thinking about, man, putting this into practice is, is overwhelming. I mean, it would be great. I mean, in theory, it would be great if we would all just out-humble one another. I mean, nobody would ever leave because we would all say, no, after you, no, after you, no, after you. We would hold the door. We would, out, we would strive to outserve one another. That's a whole lifestyle, and that's difficult. I fear we would have the same mentality as Peter, that all-or-nothing mentality. I can't do that for everyone, so I'm just not going to. Peter, right? You're, you're never going to wash my feet. No, Peter, I have to. Okay, well then wash my whole body. Like that's the mentality I fear we're going to walk out of here with is I hear it, I see it, Jesus is commanding it of me, but I can't live up to that standard. 
this is what I would encourage you to do. Start with someone. Start with someone. Start with one time, even. Maybe your spouse. If you're married, humble yourself to serve your spouse. Not out of the love for your spouse, but out of love for your Savior. Parents, children, this goes both ways. So many times we think parents are the ones that have to sacrificially love their children. Children, I would encourage you to, to do that too. Sacrifice, give of yourself. Out of love for Jesus, humble yourself. Express the love that you've received from him towards others in humility. In your community, find somebody to love. Jesus pursued you. Man, go after somebody. You go pursue them and love them with outrageous humility. This was absurd that the Son of God would humble himself and wash their feet. And when we think of humility, it's like, oh, I can humble myself to a certain extent, but i got to draw the line somewhere. It's one of those things where it's difficult sometimes to reconcile. Jesus went all the way, and he's telling us to do as he has done, yet we create barriers for ourselves. Oh, I can't do that. And I don't know what that is. I'm speaking very generically because I can't tell you a specific thing that you need to go do. But I do know this. Jesus loves you, and he's telling us to love in the same way that he is loved. And if you have not believed in Jesus, I I want you to know he loves you. He loves you. And I, I realize in this day and age, your understanding of love may not it may not be appetizing. When somebody says that Jesus loves you, yeah, but so-and-so loved me. This is what I experienced. This is the perfect, complete love. Never failing, always constant. And so don't reject him. That, that night, Judas watched as Jesus humbled himself and washed his feet, but Judas still rejected him. Don't do that. Receive Him. Trust in His perfect love displayed in complete humiliation on the cross as the payment to satisfy the just wrath of God for your disobedience. We're all disobedient. You're not alone there. But Jesus went to the cross so that you would not have to bear the consequences of that. So trust in Him because as we saw this morning, there is no other way. There's no other way for you to be saved from that. Jesus has to be the one to wash you. You can't do anything about it. So believe.